Okay. Today we're going to be looking at Matthew 12, verses 33 through 37. And this passage is the culmination of the interaction Christ has with the Pharisees here in chapter 12. And it starts, as you might expect, with a discussion on trees and fruit. So let's go ahead and turn to God's word, reading from Matthew 12, verses 33 through 37. Christ says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasures, brings forth good, and the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So as I said, this section of Matthew 12 is the culmination, it's the climax of Christ's interaction with the Pharisees in Matthew 12. Now, of course, I'm sure everyone here today, with your amazing memories, knows everything that's been going on in Matthew 12. But there are some people here who might be a little older, their minds a little less sharp and a little fresh. So maybe these young, fresh minds in front of me can help us remember what two events happened in the first half of Matthew 12 that had the Pharisees so upset. Yeah, Fox. The disciples were picking wheat on the Sabbath. Okay, that was one of them. The disciples eating the heads of grain. What's uh, what's another one? In the very back there. That's right. He healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. Yeah. Do you have a? Okay. Sorry, I saw her hand. It was still up there too soon. Okay. Well, the interesting thing. Nice try. Oh, we'll get there. I'm just talking about the first half. You're thinking ahead. Thank you. <laughs> it was. Uh, but the interesting thing about these two confrontations, the disciples eating the heads of grain and the healing of the withered hand, is that we can see in it, Jesus establishes himself as the Lord of the Sabbath and not the Pharisees. And it angered the Pharisees because they had very much set themselves up as being the ones in charge of the Sabbath, hadn't they? They were the ones who knew the exact amounts to tithe. They knew the exact amount of distances you were supposed to go on the Sabbath, the exact things you were allowed to carry depending on your profession. They were the ones who knew it all, at least in their own minds. The Pharisees had made the Sabbath a day to glorify themselves and to burden the people, and Jesus condemns them. He says to them, the people who think they know best, have you not read? It's like he's saying, come on, guys. Even a five-year-old would know these things if he spent any amount of time reading the scriptures. And then he goes on to condemn them for preaching one thing and doing the exact opposite. And so, knowing they cannot win in a debate with Jesus over the scripture, in the second half of Matthew, what happens? The demon-possessed man, yes. The, the Pharisees try to sway away the hearts of the people from Jesus by slandering him over his healing of a demon-possessed man. The Pharisees make the outrageous, the out, 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 uh, incredible claim that Jesus, the second member of Trinity, the one who was fully God and fully man, was only able to cast out demons by the power of Satan. In the midst of pointing out the absurdity of this, of how could Satan cast out Satan, uh, Jesus describes what they're doing as blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And remember how Brandon went over this last week, what the, the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit means, how it refers to one who, like the Pharisees here, like demons and like those later on in Revelation 16, they know for an absolute fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. They know that he is God, the Holy One of Israel, and yet they still choose to reject his authority and curse him. And I hope that this is actually an encouragement to you. Uh, I know when I was younger, I'd come to this passage about, uh, about the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, and I'd be fearful. I'd go, what if I do that? What if I've already done that? Uh, and I, I'd worry that I, I might be able to lose my salvation, or I might do something where maybe I wasn't really saved, and this would keep me uh, from salvation. However, when you look at this passage in Matthew 12, uh, or you look at the passage in Romans 1, verses 18 to 32, or Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8, you can see the way the people described in these three passages uh, 
people who are, if they're not having already committed the unforgivable sin, they are clearly on the path of committing the unforgivable sin. Uh, when you look at their attitudes, you see that this is a habitual thing they are doing. It's something they do over and over and over. It's not a uh, one-time thing. So if you're worried that you may have committed the unforgivable sin, let me first encourage you. Uh, read these three passages here. Matthew 12, 22, or 22 through 32, Romans 1, 18 through 32, and Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. So you can get uh, see the mindset of the one who is on this path. And let me also give you an encouragement. If you are fearful that you may have or are going to commit the unforgivable sin, I can with great confidence say that you haven't. Uh, the one who has committed the unforgivable sin would not care that they had done so. In fact, they might even rejoice that they've done so. That's what we see in Romans 1, that they rejoice in their sin. They delight in it, and they delight when other people sin along with them. Uh, so let me, let me just give you that encouragement. So having thoroughly denounced the Pharisees, publicly stating that they stand firmly against God and have no part at all in the kingdom of God, Jesus gives them one last critique. He says in verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Now in this passage, where Jesus has rebuked them for consistently attributing the miraculous deeds of gods as the work of Satan, he's going to go on to reveal the depths of their hypocrisy. You might be wondering, kind of like me, why did Jesus suddenly turn to talk about agriculture? Uh, I mean, do you really think Jesus wanted to discuss the farm life in the middle of, of this passage? Yes, no, maybe? No, 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 no of course not. <laughs> Uh, definitely not. What we're going to see is that Jesus is going to use a mundane, that is a commonplace, a non-supernatural concept, such as fruit trees, to make a larger spiritual point. Yes? Exactly, kind of like a parable. Uh, we basically get a one-sentence parable right here. Uh, now, the difference, of course, being that when it came to the parables, Jesus only revealed their greater meaning to the disciples, um, but it's the exact same concept. We are going to see that Jesus reveals to the Pharisees right now and to the people listening what the point of this one-sentence parable is. Uh, so with, with that in mind, here is the flow for tonight's passage. There we go. Got to make sure I'm doing it right tonight. <laughs> in verse 33, we're going to see Jesus gives this mundane example, the example from everyday living, something that we can all relate to. Then in verse 34, we're going to see that Jesus makes a connecting condemnation. And that connecting combination is going to be between the mundane that we see in verse 33 to the spiritual explanation that we see in verse 35. And finally, in the last two verses, verses 36 and 37, we're going to see that Jesus tells of us an eternal consequence. So starting at the beginning, with the mundane example, Jesus says, make the tree, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. So first, I want you to know something. Jesus continues to make a clear-cut division between two things. Uh, back in verse 30, we saw that Jesus made the statement, you are either with me or you are against me. You're either gathering or you are scattering. And here again, you make the tree good or you make the tree bad. We, li we live in a society right now where people like to say there are no moral absolutes, don't we? We say, well, you can't know that for sure. You, you can't really be that confident about things. Uh, this week, I actually watched a video where a young man in college got up before someone else and debated with him relentlessly, and his whole point was that I don't have a point. <laughs> and I, I said that, and it hurt to watch this video, because the other guy, he's, he's bringing up facts and statistics, and he's talking about truth, cold, hard truth, and the other guy says, you can't make that claim. And so I respond, okay, what's your claim then? I don't have a claim. I don't know. But he stood up there and he debated with them for like half an hour because the point was he wanted other people to see that he was better than the guy who had an opinion. He was saying, you can't know the truth. I don't know the truth. And I want you to think that I'm a good person for saying you can't know the truth. Yeah. Was that Jordan Peterson? It wasn't. It wasn't. No, I, and I'm not going to name names because I, I very specifically try not to specifically isolate any one person because I, I don't want to... Uh, I don't, I don't want to use this as a platform for calling anyone out, even if they are, like, just the worst preacher ever. Uh, so I, as much as possible, I, I try not to name names, but um, 
It was just a random video I saw this week. Uh, and, and the point was, the guy wanted you to know that he was morally superior for not having an opinion. But God has an opinion. Or more accurately, God is the one who makes the opinion that you and I need to have. Uh, and right here, he is saying that you are absolutely and unequivocally in one of these two camps. Uh, you don't get to have dual citizenship in heaven and hell. You have to be in one or the other. Uh, you need to either make the tree good and its produce good, or, or excuse me, and produce good fruit, or you need to make the tree bad and produce bad fruit. So this is the mundane example. A tree is going to be known by the quality of fruit it produces. Now, as a guy who grew up about 19 miles that away, in the city of Bedford, Texas, the city in the armpit of Arlington, as I used to describe. You ever look at a map, you're going to see that's literally Arlington comes out and we're right there. So I was in a, a city surrounded by cities growing up. Uh, I kind of have a hard time understanding this example. You know, it's hard for me to imagine what Christ is, is going for here because my fruit comes from a store located a mile from me. Every single morning, I have a banana that was harvested a month ago was put on a refrigeration shipment cargo uh, tanker, shipped overseas, was brought to a facility where it was artificially ripened with gases, and then placed in another refrigeration truck where it finally came to my grocery store for me to buy and eat, uh, hopefully before it went bad. So when I think about good fruit and bad fruit being mixed up, I go, well, yeah. I mean, I've, I've had grapes, and I, I, cu I cut off a little bit of the grape there, and I'm enjoying my grapes, and all of a sudden you get one, and it's mushy, and it just makes you want to spit it out and vomit. So I'm like, yeah, sure, sure, you can, you can have good and bad grapes, but, <laughs> but this is obviously not the point that Jesus means when he talks about a good tree being able to produce bad fruit or a bad tree being able to produce good fruit. I mean, show of hands here. How many of you would say if you went out to an apple orchard and you found an apple tree and you ate 99 perfect apples from that tree? Yeah, you'd be sick, but, you know, the example, you ate 99 perfect apples. In that 100th apple, you pick it, and you bite into it, and it's molded, and it's worm-rotten, and it's just disgusting. How many people would say that's a bad apple tree because of the one apple? <laughs> yeah, exactly, extra fortune. Now, conversely, how many of you would say if you went up to an apple tree and you had 99 disgusting apples, and you, you ate that last one, and it was a good apple, would you say that was a good apple tree because of the one apple? No, no, of course not. Who yeah, absolutely wouldn't? I, I don't believe people saying yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, you, you wouldn't say that. Even someone who spent their whole life. You could have a really bad insect problem. They just eat the fruit. The tree's perfectly fine. Or the We're going to talk about what you're doing right there, Fox. You wait. I'll, I'll look at you. Uh, I'll say this is exactly what Fox is talking about. So you keep that. You just put a pin in that. Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Most people would give up eating after, you know, the third or fourth apple. Say, this is just a bad, bad tree. Throw the fruit. Even, okay, hold up, hold up. Even those of us who have grown up surrounded by concrete beneath the steel sky, we're still smart enough when we go out to a farm to say this tree is categorically good or categorically bad based on picking some fruit off of it and being able to tell if this is tasty or disgusting. But remember, the people of this time were a largely agrarian society. That means their whole lives were centered around growing crops or raising livestock in big fields. Uh, the city of Jerusalem at this time would have been about 0.7 square miles big. And according to the very sources I read, it said that there were somehow 60,000 people in this city. Like, I had to look this up several times, and even as I'm telling you it, I'm like, did I really get this fact right, or did I read this about today? But no, uh, they believe there are about 60,000 people crammed into 0.7 square miles. Now, by comparison, where we are right now in the city of Justin, Texas, it is 3.27 square miles big and has four to 5,000 people living in it. So Jerusalem was heavily populated but very, very small. And around the outside of the city, you'd have the city walls there. And as you can see, all around the outside, there was nothing but 
fields where people either raise crops or tended to livestock. I mean, there's a reason why, and in the account of Matthew, we see the shepherds outside Jerusalem tending their flock. Yes. Kind of like apartments. I mean, you got to get the people in there somehow. I, I would not be surprised if uh, if those homes were uh, several deep. I mean, if you look at this, not to get too sidetracked here, you can see that they thought this was a suburb area, and then you have the upper and lower city. Um, it's, it's extremely probable that you would have multi-generational homes, and you'd have people living. I mean, Rahab, we know in Jericho, she lived on on this on the wall. So I mean, there there are places people got fit in. <laughs> it, it happened. Uh, so as a result of this, this layout, it was impossible for you to go through life without having an intimate understanding of just farm life. You couldn't escape it. You absolutely couldn't escape it, even if you weren't directly involved with the raising of crops or the tending of livestock. It was inundated. Uh, it was built into the society of the time. So the people, the average listener of Jesus' time, would have immediately understood the point Jesus was making. He would have understood, yes, of course, a tree is known by its fruit. Uh, which is why Jesus, having given them this example, then makes his condemnation to the Pharisees. In verse 34, we read, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of your heart, or of the heart, the mouth speaks. The phrase, you brood of vipers, it's used three unique times in the New Testament. Uh, first, excuse me, we see John used it back in Matthew, uh, Matthew 3, verse 7, and we get the parallel count of that in Luke 3, 7. Uh, so it's secondly used four times throughout the New Testament, but it's three unique events. Just one of them is counted in two parallel Gospels. So the second time we see it is here in Matthew 12, and finally we see it again in Matthew 23, 33. And I'm going to read these three passages to you. They're short. And I want you to see if you can tell me what they all have in common. There's a common theme that happens whenever you hear someone say, you brood of vipers. So Matthew 3, verse 7, he says, But when he, that's John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, then Matthew 23 Verses 29 through 33, he says, uh, this is Jesus speaking. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our father, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding or in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. And then, uh, obviously, the one today, uh, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or bad and bad. Uh, how can you speak good when you are evil, you brood of vipers, out of the abundance of the heart mouth speaks? Who can spot what these three things have in common? They're all directed at the Pharisees. They are? But a specific action of the Pharisees. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so what, what's in the connection? Whenever he says brood of vipers, there's a, there's a mindset going on in the people he's speaking to. What do you think it is, Fox? It's, uh, it's Jesus calling out, or Jesus and John, they're calling out their hypocrisy. That's it. That's it. exactly right. They are calling out their hypocrisy. Uh, Whenever you see brood of vipers in the Bible, this is shorthand for someone being an absolute hypocrite. In Matthew 3, we see the Pharisees and Sadducees are coming to John as if they want to be baptized, you know, a sign we want to do the right thing, we want to do what God is telling us to do. And John's saying, no, I know your hearts. You are coming here not because you want to repent and do what's right. You're coming here because you want the praise of men. You want people to think well of you as if you were doing what God wanted you to do. Uh, in Matthew 23, we see Jesus rebuking the religious leaders for lamenting, oh, if only I had been alive in the time of the prophets. I would have been on their side. I wouldn't have been the ones killing them. Uh, and, and, you know, I have to confess, I, I often have that same mindset. I mean, I, I think, man, wouldn't it have been amazing 
to be alive when Jesus was alive, I would have been on his side. But for the grace of God, if it weren't for the grace of God, I would have been one of the people in the, ma- in the mob shouting, crucify him, crucify him. <laughs> and in the Pharisees' case, we can see the, uh, what Jesus said was exactly true. As we read through Acts, we see that the disciples are beaten, they are flogged, they are stoned, they are uh, crucified, uh, exactly as, as Jesus told them they would be, because uh, they're being hypocritical. Now, as a Christian, when we get to the verses here in verses 33 and 34, we tend to accept it as truth, and we move along. And that's good. I am glad that as you read the scripture, you accept it as truth. Well done. (laughs) But I want you to think hard about this for a minute. Let's not just move along. Let's be like the Bereans who, when they heard the gospel message, they accepted it with joy, but they also examined the scriptures daily to see if the things they were being taught were true. So let's, let's think about this for just a minute. Knowing that uh, we are the trees and our actions are the fruit we bear, because that's the analogy Christ is made, making here. Has Christ given an unreasonable instruction in verse 33 to make the tree good or make the tree bad? Can you make yourself good? What? No. Say it loud. No. Easy answer. Yeah, no. No, you can't make yourself good. Isaiah 53, 6. It says it quite clearly. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned, uh, we turned away everyone to his own way. Uh, apart from Christ, we always turn away from God. That is our default uh, position. Ephesians 2, it makes it clear that before the rich mercy God fills us up with as Christians and brings us to life, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no way to make ourselves good or alive. Uh, But this isn't an unreasonable command from Christ. Uh, Christ would never make an unreasonable demand, obviously. But uh, we can look at this and intellectually go, yeah, Christ isn't making an unreasonable demand because Christ is not giving this instruction so that we can learn to make ourselves good. That's not the point he's trying to go here. He's not saying, hey, if you do the right things, you can make yourself good. Otherwise, you're making yourself bad and you're doing bad things. No, 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 no. Uh, there, there's always a danger, Fox, to overinterpret scriptures, <laughs> even among believers. Uh, we've all been there. I, Fox, I'm calling you out because you said, well, what about insects uh, on, the, on the fruit trees? The in, maybe insects are doing something. Well, no, no, no. There, there's always a temptation. And so, Fox, I'm just picking on you because you said that. Um, don't read too much into my example. But there's always, isn't there? There's always an interpretation. We come to a parable and we want to be diligent in our study of God's word. And there's a temptation to over interpret it. Uh, we see God in, or we see Jesus instructing them to make the tree good. So we think, hey, you know what? Maybe, maybe if I fertilize the ground with prayer, maybe if I prune the branches of people, of bad friendships, people are pulling me away from Christ. Maybe if I add nitrogen to the soil and beneficial insects, like going to church, maybe that's how I can make the tree good. Maybe that's how I can make an unbelieving family member good. As you get older, should the Lord bless you with children? Think maybe if I do these things, maybe that's how I can make my children good. If I really stretch this analogy, but can you see the issues with the things I'm talking about? What's the issue, Taylor? We're not God. That's true. That's true. What else, what else is the issue? What is... Can't make yourselves good. You can't make yourselves good. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yes. I see what you're saying. Um, uh, obviously, you do need to be in church. Um, these are all things we should absolutely be doing, but let me catch to the chase here. The issue with all these things is they were what the Pharisees were doing. <laughs> Going to church, praying, letting people see you do good things. These were all things the Pharisees were doing that Jesus is condemning them for in this passage. If I try to stretch this analogy that I can make myself good by doing certain things, I am guilty of doing the things the Pharisees were doing. Now, obviously, 
Yes, you absolutely should be doing these things. We're taught to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. We're told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as a body of believers in Hebrews 10.25. We're told that as iron sharpens iron, so the countenance of one man sharpens another in Proverbs 27.17. These are all good things to be doing. These are important things to be doing as part of your Christian life. But we can't say that this passage, if I stretch the analogy, will make someone good. No one but God can make a tree good. And that's the point of this passage. The passage is not this is a recipe for how to make yourself good. The point of the passage is that you are not good apart from Christ. Uh, the belief the Pharisees had was that they were good based on the things they were doing. So this is the connecting condemnation Christ is making between his analogy of make the tree good and have good fruit or make the tree bad and have bad fruit. The connection here is... Uh, you think you're good? No. Before I can even tell you about how spiritually bad you are, before I can even tell you about spiritual matters, you need to understand that you are evil and what's coming out of your mouth is what's condemning you. Now, I think if we're all honest with ourselves, it's extremely rare to find someone who would say, uh, this is my heart condition. Yeah, right? Like no one reads a passage like this apart from the grace of God, God and says, yeah, you know what? That describes me. I am evil to the core. And I really like say, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I, I do good things. But do you remember the condemnation Christ had for the Laodicean church? Remember in Revelation, Christ addresses seven churches in the area. He has a different message for each one of them. And the church of Laodicea, if, if we turn to Revelation 3 and verses 15 through 19, Christ speaking to the church of Laodicea says, I know your works. You are neither cold or hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. So solve your eyes so that you may see uh, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Now, when this letter was written to Laodicea, uh, it was fabulously wealthy. This was an enormously wealthy city. It was located in just the right spot for trade to be coming through it. So the people there had great wealth. But what they had was a water problem. Because you see, Christ doesn't use this example out of thin air. Uh, Christ has a specific reason for the one-sense parables he gives wherever we find them. Just the same way that he knew the people in Jerusalem would understand the tree being good or bad. He knew that the people of Laodicea would hear this hot or cold comment and would know exactly what he means. So if you look at this map here, about six miles to the north, you see the city of Heropolis, and they were renowned for their hot springs. In fact, uh, they were renowned not just for being hot, which is nice after you know hard day's work, you get into that hot tub, you take a hot shower, and just relax the muscles, but they actually believed it had additional therapeutic properties to it. Meanwhile, nine miles to the east, you had the city of Colossae. And the city of Colossae enjoyed crisp, cold water coming down uh, from the mountain that was next to it all year long. Just snow melt water. Unfortunately, Laodicea had to get its water through five miles of aqueducts. Now, y'all have probably seen pictures of uh, the typical Roman aqueduct. It's way up high in the air, and it's just open to the elements, and so it gurgles along and everything's fine. For Laodicea, they said this wasn't a really good solution for whatever reason. Engineers... I don't know, ask Drew. You never know what those, are, those engineers are, are up to. But they said, we need to do it like this. Uh, so what they did is they, they took stone and they put a clay pipe going through the middle of it. For five or six miles, you had these pipes baking in the sunlight so that you took this cool, crisp water from the river. And by the time it made it to Laodicea, it was just lukewarm. It wasn't hot enough to bathe in and get the benefits of, 
of that warm water relieving you, and it wasn't cold enough to, to put like some wine into, because that's what the people of Colossae enjoyed. They got to put their, their wine in this crisp water and would chill it, and it was a delicacy, and they loved it. It was good for nothing. So when Christ describes them as lukewarm, he's leveling the same condemnation as he has for the Pharisees here in Matthew 12. He's saying, you think you're good. You think that because you're fabulously wealthy or because you're doing good things, uh, you go to church, you sing songs, whatever external thing you think you're doing that's making you good, no, that's not making you good. That's not making you right with God. Uh, it's, it's worthless. You know, it's not good enough for bathing in it. It's not good enough for chilling wine in. I just wish I could spit it out of my mouth. The only thing it's good for, to stretch the analogy, the only thing it's good for is just staying alive. And I wish I could get rid of it. God's saying when you trust those external things, you're, when you're trusting your good works to bring you salvation, you are in fact in a miserable, pitiable condition. So having condemned this mindset of professing to be good while in fact being evil, of trusting in your good works to make you righteous with God, uh, despite having Isaiah, remember, they weren't without the Bible. They had the Old Testament scriptures to look at. They should have known and read in Isaiah that all their good deeds were like filthy rags. And yet they still trusted in those good things. Christ goes on at this point to give a spiritual explanation that undoubtedly proves the Pharisees' own speech were proving that they were evil. Uh, back in Matthew 12, at the end of verse 34, we see Christ tell them, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasures brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasures brings forth evil. Now I want to know, what is a topic that you guys could, could talk about just incessantly with someone? Like, if you could just sit down with someone and they gave you no feedback at all, what's something you could just blather on about? And, no cheating, the answer can't be the Bible. <laughs> I want to know, external to that, What's something you could just talk and talk and talk about? Yeah, Taylor? A bunch of different Jesus and the way they're made. Jesus and the way they're made? That, that does sound interesting. Yeah. The entire history of World War II. Okay. Same. Now, I, I do have a belief here, guys. I will listen to all of I have a belief here. I, I don't know if it's the same way for girls. My knowledge in that area is obviously limited. But with guys, I think we all have our own favorite war. Uh, the Civil War, that, that's my favorite. World War II. World War II. I think it does. I, I think you could say for all Arbor counts. All right, hold on, hold on. What else? What else? Okay, hold on. I, I want to I hear more from y'all. I want to hear more from y'all. Yes. What's a Politics? Sure. Political science? Yes. Minecraft. Minecraft? Oh. My son can talk nonstop about Minecraft. He's like, Dad, do you know how to? No. No, I don't. I treasure my ignorance. <laughs> yes? Uh, books. Books? Anything in particular? I started reading a series called Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Ooh, good series. Good series. I'm not going to ruin it for you. Yeah, right? Okay. I don't, hey, don't spoil the ending for him. Shush. No, no, no. Well, okay. Hey, no, no, no spoilers. That's, that's something he'll have to, to address with his own parents. It's okay. Okay, hold on. Hold on. Okay, this is exact. I'm so glad you had this response. This is exactly what I'm talking about. Personally, I can go on and on about movies. I love, and I don't mean like, I don't mean like I can talk about the Avengers or I can talk about Star Trek. I mean how movies are made. I love that process. I love talking about the hero's journey, the three-act structure. Uh, I love talking about dolly zooms, a long shot, Dutch angle. It's a fascinating process how each one of these different camera techniques influences the way you're thinking about the movie. Even the direction people walk on screen has been shown to influence if you think they're a good guy or a bad guy. Wow. It's true. That's right. I'm serious. Like People associate with moving from the right to the left as being moving forward in a good way. So they have the good guys walk that way, and if it's a bad guy, they have them go the opposite way. I might have that backwards, I am dyslexic. But the point is, they, they've seen that people tend to associate one direction as moving forward in a positive way, and so they have the good guys go that way. But I tend to not go on and on about it when I'm not teaching a Bible lesson, 
because most people don't care about it. I mean, but whenever I hear someone else mention it, uh, I'm sorry, you gotta, you gotta hold, hold the question here at this point. Whenever I hear someone else mention it, I join in that conversation as quick as I can because uh, it's something I'm abundantly passionate about. It overflows out of me whenever I get the opportunity. And as I can see here tonight, it's the same with y'all. It's absolutely the same with y'all. The things that you're passionate about will absolutely bubble forth like a spring coming out of the ground. So let me ask you this now. And don't answer it. Think about this in the privacy of your own mind. Are you passionate about the things of God? When it's time for church, are you resentful that you're having to give up that time to come to church? You go, man, I have 50 things to do today. I can't believe I'm having to take two hours out of my day to go to church. I have so much homework to do tonight. I can't believe I'm coming to youth group again. When your classmates mock Christianity for the things they believe, traditional standards, biblical standards, I should say, do you at least make a mental note to go home and see what the Bible says about those subjects? Like, like if you're not confident enough, and I don't, I don't critique anyone who's not confident enough to say, you know what, you're wrong about this, and here's a passage why. You're learning, okay? I, I did, there's subjects to this day where if someone said something, I'd go, I don't, I know for a fact, I don't know the Bible well enough to discuss this, and I need to go fix that. That's part of the things I do with my daily reading. I fix my lack of knowledge. So I don't critique you if you don't know how to stand up, okay? But do you go home and research it? Or do you sit as quietly as you can because you don't want them to know that you're a Christian? You don't want them to associate their mocking with you because you're ashamed of the things of God. For the Pharisees, Christ was saying unequivocally that they were not passionate about God. And it was their own words that proved it. And we see this played out with the rest of Christ's interactions with them. Look at Matthew 15, 3. In Matthew 15, the Pharisees are asking Jesus, why don't your disciples follow our traditions of washing hands? Now understand, this wasn't like, hey, I'm going to eat something. I'm going to wash my hands. No, there was this big ceremony that you were supposed to do. It involved a specific way to wash your hands and the cups and the plates and the pots. It was ridiculous. It was a man-made tradition, and they had it on the same standard of biblical teaching. And Jesus' response in verse 3, he says, why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? He's saying, look, you make up these things, and you deny what the Bible tells you to do so that you can do what your traditions say you can do. It says, for God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father and mother what you would have gained from me, it's given to God. He need not honor his father and mother. So for the sake of tradition, you made void the word of God. The, the traditions of the Jewish elders at this time, that's kind of a, like a weird thing. Yeah, hold on. So next time I have to go to eat, like dinner or lunch or something like that, uh, I can tell my mom... I don't have to wash my hands because you said you don't have to keep the old law. Nope. Uh, nope, because you want to be honoring your father and mother. Nice try. Yeah, there we go. We got some aloe vera somewhere. <laughs> no, so I understand. The, the point what he's saying here, when he says, I would have given it to my parents, but I've instead given it to God. Uh, what was, well, there was a tradition where you could take an object and you could say, I'm setting this object apart for God. But then you didn't do anything with the object except use it yourself. <laughs> and so, like, imagine if you had a field and you said, well, you know, I could sell that field or I could grow something in, in there or my parents could grow something in the field so they could live. He said, but unfortunately, I donated this field to God. So it's not that I sold it and gave the money to the temple. It's not that I'm physically taking this object and giving to the temple. I'm just saying, oh, it's God's. And then I continue to use it to benefit myself. And the Pharisees were saying, you can do that. And that doesn't violate the commandment to honor your father and mother. And Jesus is saying, this is ridiculous, guys. You are absolutely dishonoring your father and mother uh, and trying to pretend 
like you're not. You're, you're trying to make your tradition equal, to, not just equal to the Bible, but superior to the Bible. Uh, so you, they're saying that you can dishonor your parents while at the same time being spiritual. And again, in Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat to swallow a camel. So mill, dill, and cumin. That's what we got right here. Um, this is cumin. Nothing really matters. That's mint. And this is the last one, dill. I probably got those wrong. But these are the smallest herbs you could have in your garden. And the Pharisees at the time loved to make such a pageantry of obeying the scriptures, quote unquote, obeying the scriptures, that they would carefully count out these little sprigs. Because you don't use the whole one, you use the sprig. And they count out and they carefully see how much they had so they could give exactly the amount they said they needed to give. They were precise about their tithing of these smallest things, but they neglected the weightier matters of God. They neglected honoring their own father and mother. And he uses the example, it's like they're so obsessed looking for gnats in their food that they're ignoring this camel sitting in their dinner. And they're so, they're so dedicated to picking out the gnats, it's like they take that camel and just shove it into their mouths because they're so blind about the weightier matters. When Jesus makes the claim that the Pharisees are evil, it is not a minor thing he's saying here. Front to back, top to bottom, the Pharisees were evil, and Christ wants them to know in no uncertain terms that the reason their mouth brings forth evil, despite the fact, uh, despite the fact that they do good things, is because their heart was evil. Let me, let me ask you this. Can a person bear no fruit at all? No. Hmm? No. 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 A person cannot bear no fruit. Look at verse 33 that we're reading. Either a tree bears good fruit or it's going to bear bad fruit. There is no in-between. And I say this because a lot of people, they, we, we're going to look at this parable later on. The parable of the seeds and how some people, they produce a crop that is 100 times more, 60 times more, 30 times more than what you put out there. And that's how we judge ourselves. So we say, eyewitness and zero people have come to the faith because of me. And we go, I'm bearing no fruit. I want y'all to understand you are being too harsh on yourself. Yes, you should be out witnessing. And by the grace of God, someday you will bring someone to faith. It is a truly magnificent thing. But that is not the only way you bear fruit. Every single time you do anything with the mindset of, I'm going to honor God by doing this thing. When you see your sibling really wants something, and instead of insisting on your own way, you say, no, I'm going to love my sibling because God wants me to and I want to honor God. You are bearing fruit. Praise God. And anytime you are not doing something to honor God, even if it's good, like going to church, like tithing, like caring for the fatherless, caring for the widow. When you do these things to honor yourself, to glorify yourself, you are producing bad fruit. There is no in between. Yeah, you don't do it for your own glorification. When you tithe, you do it because you want to honor God with your tithing. That is a great conversation to have uh, later on. It's definitely beyond the scope of this. Um, but, you know, it, that falls into the, I might say that that falls into the category of free will offerings. If you look at the Levitical law, there were things you were supposed to do. And then beyond that, you were allowed to do uh, more than that. And so you, I might say tithing falls in that category. There's certainly no, there, there's no passage in scripture in the New Testament where we are affirmed that we're supposed to give X percentage. Now, everyone, this is kind of one of those freedom issues where as God moves your conscience, you need to be doing it. Uh, tithing absolutely should be part of your daily life. It's the amount that the Bible doesn't have strict parameters on. In the Old Testament, it was 10%. A lot of New Testament Christians continue that belief. Uh, but, it, yeah. Yes, Taylor. What is tithing? What is tithing? 
Uh, so tithing is whenever you earn money, you take part of that earning and you give it back to God. So if someone makes $100, uh, if you want to tithe 10%, you would take, am I doing my math right? Ten, yeah, $10. And you would give that to the church. Because, and the reason we, we do know that you are supposed to be tithing is as we read Acts, we see how uh, part of the joy of the other churches was to send donations to a churches in need. Uh, and, and you can't do that if you're not tithing. So we're going to move on from the subject. It's outside the scope of this passage, but I like that you're thinking. This is important stuff. As we talk about these weighty issues, you absolutely, look, the Christian life should be like, when it comes to reading the Bible, it should be like one of those Russian nesting dolls, Okay. You read a passage and you have a question. And as you answer that question, you go, yes, I have the answer. You find that there's another doll inside of it. And you say, okay, what's the answer to this question? And you open up and you find there's another one inside. That is the joy of Christian life, that we get to know Christ more and more every day. So I'm glad that you are thinking beyond just the scopes of this. Uh, and and we'll, we'll come and we'll be talking about that at some point. I, I just about guarantee it. Uh, but but uh, back to what we're talking about in this passage. The point is, when it comes to our own life, we are either bearing good fruit or we're bearing bad fruit. And I want you all to be aware that every time you do something to honor God, you are bearing good fruit. So please don't sell yourself short. Uh, absolutely do not sell, sell yourself short because you're not bearing fruit the way someone else is. Uh, so in light of this, Jesus gives what is frankly a chilling warning, a very chilling warning, uh, about the eternal consequences of those words that overflow out of our hearts. In verse 26, he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned. If we're justified or condemned by our words, is this, is this verse saying that uh, there's justification outside of Christ's death and resurrection? This is, one of those, this is one of those nesting doll situations. Think hard. If we are justified, according to this verse I just read from the Bible, think hard about this before you answer. If we are justified or condemned by our words, is there justification in any other name than God's, in Christ's? No. No, no, no. no. There is salvation in no other name, for no other name has been given under heaven except Christ. Uh, so let's, let's start with that. Um, Neither is it trying to say that Christ's death gets us onto the playing field and then we got to get ourselves to the finish line. Not saying that. Uh, so what is the verse trying to say? Um, and, and just the best explanation I give, can give for this is if you look at Revelation 20. This is going to be the last spot we look at tonight, guys. Uh, so Revelation 20, starting verse 11. John writes, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne of God. Excuse me, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were with them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, we're not going to go through the whole passage. We're at the end of our time. But the scriptures, such as Philippians 4.3, make it clear that the book of life we're being talked about here contains the name of every Christian that will ever come to faith. So understand, when Matthew 12 says your words will justify or condemn you, when we see here in Revelations 20 that you'll be judged by the actions of your book, but what ultimately is the thing that saves you from the lake of fire? Jesus. And specifically in Revelation 20, we're told that it's the names that are written in the book of life, and the people whose names are in the book of life are those who believe in Jesus Christ. The only thing your words are going to do are going to be to condemn you. Jesus, Jesus in Matthew 12 is giving a strong warning that their overwhelming guilt will be judged one day. Uh, and that is, that is our eternal consequence. It's your own words, your own actions that are going to be judging you. Anyone who trusts in them, anyone who trusts in your words and your deeds to bring you justification will absolutely stand before God and will be judged and found lacking. 
It is only in Christ that you will be saved. So what should we take away from this passage? Uh, Well, first and foremost, we need to recognize that this is one of the passages God gave to us to act as a litmus test for our spiritual life. If you have any doubts about the sincerity of your faith, pay attention to what subjects, uh, uh, subjects come the quickest to your lips. You know, we're talking about how from your heart, your words are going to overflow abundantly. What is the first thing on your mind in the morning? What's the last thing on your mind as, you're, as you drift off to sleep? What are the subjects that just spring forth out of you? Are, are they Christ-honoring subjects? Are they coarse language? Are they inappropriate jokes? What is what's coming out of your mouth? This is absolutely a test for your spiritual condition. Uh, second, and if the, if the things are, are continually bad things coming out of your mouth, they're constantly the things on your mind, let this be a test for you. And, and strongly consider, am I in Christ based on my own words and, and actions? Uh, second, for those of in Christ, are you spending time in God's word? One day, all of us absolutely will stand before the throne of God and all our actions, the things we said, those careless little things, we think no one's around, and we just have that careless word out. It's going to be held, holding us accountable. And, and understand this isn't some sort of skill. It's not that I can have enough good things. It is that a single word is enough to hold me accountable. Remember uh, Jesus saying, whoever says of his brother fool, or whoever says raka, which just fool in Hebrew, that one word, that one careless statement is enough to hold you condemned for all time in in hell. So if one day all our actions are going to be laid bare, if we're told that we're going to be known based on the kind of fruits we produce, make sure you know what good things are, what the things God wants you to be doing. And the only way you're going to know what God wants you to be doing, the only way you're going to know the things that you should be doing to produce good fruit is by... What? Being diligent to read the scriptures. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By knowing your your law. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this time to gather together with you. I pray that we would use these passages as a test for our spiritual life. Father, are we in you? The last thing we desire is to think that we are in a right state with you and not be. Lord, if there's anyone here who believes from the bottom of their heart that they're in you and yet they're not, I ask that you would reveal that to them as they consider their actions and their words and that that might cause them to turn to you to genuine faith in Christ the Son, the only name that you've given to us under heaven by which man may be saved. We thank you that you have poured out your grace so fully that Christ's death could cover the multitude of sins that I have committed and that you love us so deeply that for when we turn to you, you pour Christ's righteousness. You clothe us in his righteousness. Lord, may we all turn to you and love you deeply. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Yeah.